Hello and welcome along to the Unplugged Pod, where each week we explore absolutely everything to do with switching off in a world that's always on. I'm David and alongside me as ever is Mr Unplugged, Hector Hughes. This week we're joined by Andy Ayam. Andy is a serial entrepreneur and investor, as well as holding an MBE and he's a man who thinks very deeply about life and how he spends his time. Hope you enjoy. The Andy. Hi, welcome to the Unplugged Pod. Let's uh, let's start in the best place by asking you, how do you unplug? I've got two answers to this. Um, one is I love backpacking, so um, I've gone on a few local and, and I guess uh, far-reaching backpacking journeys. When I was twenty-one, I think I took my first adventure to South America, backpacked for three months. Um, and I remember that like, I'm from Ghana originally and I feel like no one in my whole lineage has ever been South Africa, South America before. So it was quite, quite a daunting uh, ask to ask my parents to kind of go on that adventure. But I love just how traveling to a new space can just help you to immerse into a new culture and gain empathy into like all of the things that we have as shared experience as humanity. So I love backpacking and camping. So about five to 10 years ago now, actually, it was my first camping adventure where I went across East Africa for 30 days and camped and went to Serengeti to be in wildlife with animals. And I love, love doing those kind of experiences. And more locally, I love swimming. Swimming is one of those things for me. I don't even count the lengths. I just kind of swim endlessly and let my mind drift to wherever it goes. And there's just something about being in the water that's just so still and, and peaceful for me. So I love the two of those activities. What what got you started backpacking? Because you say it's you know, not something you'd been around growing up or, or going that far afield. What inspired that, do you think? I think I've got a curse of curiosity. Um, I, was, I actually had a work experience and I studied to be an accountant. That was the degree that I did at university. And uh, during my one-year placement, everyone was talking about different places they had travelled to. I just got really envious and really curious around... I'd love to travel somewhere different. And initially I was like, oh, let me go to Africa. And I'm from Ghana, so I know Africa, really ignorant. I was very young. Um, I thought, no, that's too close to home. Let me go somewhere completely different. So I'm like, let me learn a bit of Spanish. Didn't learn enough Portuguese. And then I went to Peru initially, did the Inca Trail, Machu Picchu, Bolivia, did the Salt Flats, into Brazil, where I went into the Pantanal, which was incredible. Then into Rio, then to Chile and Argentina and Uruguay before coming back to the UK. Wow, amazing. Um, um, so, I mean, you've obviously been in London. How long have you been in London for now? I've lived Lon- in London all my life, but okay. just always travelled for work. Right, so right, I lived yeah. in South, South Africa for about a year and a half, then San Francisco for about a year, then little stints elsewhere like Hong Kong and whatnot across my journey. And now I sound like I'm about 65. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you packed it in for sure. <laughs> I, I love swimming as an answer, by the way. We've had that pop up a couple of times. I think that's so ultimate in the sense that you really are cutting yourself off. Because even running, jogging, you can be plugged into a podcast and, and things like that. But swimming, it's, it really is like you, you and your thoughts. Um, the camping in Africa is fascinating. I think scribbled away somewhere, Hector, on our uh, guest list for this podcast is Russ Cook. Have you seen his journey? He's a Brit who's trying to run the entire length of Africa. And obviously everything that comes with that, like... Uh, potential danger and like visa stuff but his journey is is amazing and you know what he's taken from it and like connecting with the communities as he goes through and and the the people he's met is is, is insane so yeah m- maybe one day we'll uh, we'll get that but one month camping in that that must have been really cool that was amazing i can't wait to take my whole family that's like my next trip like, i want to try to take everyone on a bit of a camping journey across east africa that's also you're just pitching up anywhere when you're when you're doing that you can just 
you're tra- traveling as you're going yeah, yeah you kind of yeah. freestyle 50 percent, plan 50 percent. <laughs> i just i'm a big believer in that everything's figure outable it probably comes from the entrepreneurial side of, of us both all, all three of us to be honest but everything's figure outable isn't it it's like uh, don't panic you can figure it out you just got to talk to people and get to know people yeah yeah 100%. yeah so what, where did the entrepreneuring come from for you that's a great question um I'll tell you a funny story, actually. So I grew up in Tottenham, not too far from where we're recording this today, actually. And um, I had a corner shop that my dad had a really good relationship with. And he used to ask the corner shop owner, this is how old this was, um, to order the weekly FT and the economist into the into the corner store for our family. And obviously, it's not a pay for a magazine or a store because the demographic of the area isn't the same as Canary Wharf. So they're not likely to sell many of those copies. So every week, they used to order that just for our family. So when I used to read it, it used to be really random things like the Chelsea Flower Show. And it was just a window into a brand new life. But one of the things that you used to talk a lot about was these like chief executives and stocks and shares and businesses. And I just found it fascinating. It was almost like Lego bricks to me. So there's marketing and there's sales and there's finance and there's supply chain. And all these things fit together to make a business to solve problems together. And I just found that fascinating. And then I learned more and more around how business can be such a force for good and a platform for good if you want to scale your impact. There's a lot you can do by yourself, but there's even more you can do collectively. For sure, for sure. I mean, impact seems to be something that's very kind of central to how you live your life. Was that was that ingrained early? Yeah, I just think from a young age, I was very aware that like, my parents took this sacrifice of a country they knew in Ghana to come to a country they didn't know in the UK. And I didn't want to take the piss with that. Do you know what I mean? I wanted to make the most of it. So in school, right way through to work. And I was just always like, you know, what? I'm really grateful for this opportunity that I have. And I know that those young kids just like me who are from Ghana, who lived there, who had high potential but low access to opportunity. So I just wanted to make sure that I made the most of my opportunity. I knew that London is one of those unique cities across the world where there's something called social capital. If you can get to know the right person, they think you're a decent person, a safe pair of hands, they'll give you opportunities. And, you know, up till this year, I mean, if just in January now, where as of this recording and... I've had young people follow me to work and just shadow me, get into a meeting with one of my clients. My clients give them work experience. They've got a job. It's just a magical place like that. So I love that, you know, there's such a platform for opportunity here if you build relationships with the right people. For sure, for sure. So, so you went into accounting and, and then did you start Mixtape Madness straight out? Straight yeah, out so back? I studied accounting, but that one year experience taught me that I did not want to be an accountant. <laughs> it was very routine. It wasn't how my mind worked. I felt like I was using 20% of my capacity. No disrespect to accountants. <laughs> very, Im- very important job. We all need them. Um, but no, in my evenings and weekends when I had my first job at Ernst & Young as a management consultant, it didn't feed into my entrepreneurial side. It was a bit too structured, a bit too rigid. It was great for learning the basics, you know, like email etiquette, stakeholder management, how corporate works, but it wasn't so good in terms of, I've got this idea on how to solve this problem. Like, do I have space to execute on it? So like many entrepreneurs in the evenings and weekends, we started like scratching our own itch. We all loved urban music, my brother and a few friends and I. So we got together and we're like, there's no central location online where I can consume this music that we love. And this is pre-Spotify, pre-iTunes. I told you I'm 65. So we, we created Mixtapes Madness to solve our own problems initially. Like we want to listen to Dizzy Rascal, Skepta and all these artists that we love. But right now we don't want to go on this dodgy MySpace site or this little forum to download every mixtape or listen to their songs. And that was, that was how the business started. Yeah. And how, how was that? How was that journey? 
this incredible journey because before we knew it, we, we started the landing page. We used to go to raves like universities, pitch up, have like our iPad, ask people to sign up. <laughs> and all we had were like pictures of different artists. It was enough to get people signed up, I guess. Um, but it, it created that positive, positive demand pressure. Like, oh my gosh, shit moment. Like 300 people have signed up. We're going to have to build something now. So it forced us to, again to figure it out and start building this and learning, learning how to code ourselves to build this business and build this website. And fast, fast forward to today, that business is now a multi-million pound business. My brother still runs that business today, totally bootstrapped because we didn't even know what angel or VC investment was. But it was built on such solid fundamentals that regardless of market conditions, it's done well. And I think that's a lot to be said actually in this market that we're currently in. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, so, so one of the things that really respect about you now, many things, but uh, is, is just how deeply you think about how you spend your time back then early stage founder were you going to work in long hours what what did that look like so back then in all honesty I felt like work and my career and my entrepreneurial endeavors were like the son of my universe everything rotated around that in an unhealthy way like many people right so oh Andy I want to go out Friday evening are you up for it oh no I'm working late I've got a project you know or there's a date I could go on on Wednesday oh no I'm working on a client in South Africa or in Italy so actually what you start noticing is actually like my whole life was dictated by my working hours and actually what work wanted me to do. And it's only when I had my first child, my daughter, then I kind of had to reconstruct that, take a step back and have that self-awareness to think for a minute and say that my family needs to be the son of my universe and work, my entrepreneurial endeavors, investments need to rotate around that because... You know, one day if I'm on my deathbed, I'm not going to ask for my laptop, for my investments. I'm going to ask for more time with my loved ones. So why wait till then when I can optimize for that now? And that kind of like almost like helped me unlearn that unhealthy pattern and relearn, relearn actually how I wanted to live my life more intentionally. Interesting. Was it like a, a switch flicking when you, when you had your first? It wasn't actually. It was, um, I remember when I had my first daughter, I started thinking about my personal values. I'm like, every company I'm going into, I'm adopting these foreign values that they call company values. But what do I stand for and what do I care about? And I created a value. There's a few of them, but one called two and five, which meant that two evenings a week, I'm happy to go to a work social, play football with mates, see friends, go and speak at an event, go and attend an event. But five evenings, evenings a week, I want to be present with my children. I want them to know who me, know their father was, be there during the, the pick, school pickups, the school plays. Um, so it's a very, just a very conscious decision that I made back then and I've tried to honor it till today. So I think just like shaping my own personal values helped in a big way in making more informed decisions. And then journaling, which we can, we can have a whole conversation about journaling. <laughs> do you think, this may be a question for both of you, but um, do you think it's possible, you said you made kind of social sacrifices and other sacrifices to go all in on work. Do you think it's possible to build a, a very successful company without at least having a period where you do say no to the date, mates, travel, holidays, so you can, you can really, really focus in on building something special? I think, it, I think it's always a trade. Life is about trade-off and opportunity cost. And I think it's never going to be fully balanced and you have to be at peace with that. So sometimes my family's not going to get the best of me during a period of times when maybe I'm pitching to a number of clients or I'm winning work or I'm traveling for work internationally. And that's okay because I'm at peace with it and I've got this social contract with my family that they're aware of it. That is it's the occasion, not the regularity, that kind of occurrence. But with work as well, it depends on the level of your ambition. Right, like if I did want to become a category winner and build a global business, that's going to take a lot of time and effort out of me. If I did want to build a multi-million pound business, maybe sell up for 15 million, 20 million, it's life-changing money for me personally. 
could I could do that around my family quite easily. So it depends, I think, on the level of ambition and what you're willing to put in in terms of trade-off to get there. And then team makes a massive difference. If you hire really well and you hire the right and you create the right culture within the company and you're able to prioritize ruthlessly, it makes a huge difference. You know, when I do, you look at my journal and I kind of look back every six months or every 12 months, it's so interesting when I look at the inefficient ways that I spent time. If I added up all of the meetings that were non-beneficial, didn't lead to any new work, didn't lead to a richer relationship for me, I didn't gain from that. There was like over over 70 hours of meetings. So this year, guess what? I'm a bit more ruthless with, with who I'm choosing to meet. And I'm going to miss out because I love connecting with people. So it's not an easy decision for me. But is it the right decision? It is, given that I'm trading off my family time or building my business, and I don't want to give any of them up to meet that person, unfortunately. And that's where I think content's really powerful because it allows me to scale my impact in a different way. So a lot of founders would love to spend time with me and have a coffee with me. It's impossible for me to do that because I'm not a charity or I'm not a philanthropist yet. So instead, I try and create really helpful content, events, spaces, where I can just affect people on a one-to-many basis, but really helpful and tactical, rather than just a quote of the week or just talking off the top of my head. And I think founders appreciate that with, about me and in, in the feedback that I receive anyway. Hopefully they're being true. <laughs> and Hector, you, you, how, how do you endeavor to do that? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought Andy made a lot of great points in there. And I think, you know, f- fundamentally, especially, especially like the start or for your first startup, I think you're learning so much the first time around. Um, that it does just just suck so much focus, attention, all of these things, and so it really doesn't leave much headspace for anything else, whether whether you like it or not. And I think I almost see people go through their second, third, fourth startups, and you know you, you can almost see them kind of easing off a bit, delegating more, like all these kind of things. I think you know, delegating and working with great people is the the, the secret to getting around that. Um, but I also think in that time that's spent. So much of it is wasted. I know we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast, but you know, throughout the day we waste so much time. It's unbelievable. Like ninety-five percent of work that happens at any company or, or at most companies is a waste of time, in my opinion. Like you could you could chuck that away and nothing would change. And so I think it's often because it's you know it's really challenging. Like you go into starting a company so unsuited and unqualified to start a company, and so it is just very hard. You're, you're, you're bad at everything you're doing. And that sucks a lot. But I think the, the busyness then almost comes from trying to make up for that. You know, it's like the insecurity of, fuck, I don't know what I'm doing. So I need to like send a thousand emails, be busy. Yeah, yeah. Like really hustle. Whereas like when you've done it a couple of times, you're like, you talked about social capital earlier. It's like, oh, no, I just need to put in a call to like this guy and this guy can sort me out with it, you know, rather than having to do all that. So I think, I think you learn how to work much smarter. Um, and, but, but then and the last point I want to make on that is just around the, you, you've got 16 hours that you're awake in a day, but really you probably have one or two hours where you're at your mental peak. And I think it's all about, again, what are you thinking about in those hours? And when you're really in the building stage of a company, like it needs to be, uh, Paul Graham wrote an essay about it, which is like it needs to be what you're thinking about in the shower, you know? It's like, what is the thing in the morning? You're like, okay, what's the big problem I'm thinking about? And again, it's so easy to just get caught up in like office politics or like whatever it is, you're thinking about just some inconsequential thing, not the things that really matter. So I think inevitably it is very consuming. I think you can do other stuff on the side, but it's trade-offs, you know? Like if, if you've got a family, and you're doing the startup, you're obviously not going to be there as much for your friends, vice versa. There's lots of things 
exercise are you going to be able to do that as much again i would argue that you come back better for the the time you are working so yeah that's a bit of a ramble um, can i just add two two quick things to that as well i think the the more you continuously learn as a founder because this journey is around a, a lifelong learning process as a founder or just life in general to be honest but the more you start to recognize signal against noise like what is noise what is signal and me i'm a big proponent of like time blocking so i know that my most productive hours are in the morning so I know between nine and between 12, you can't, you can't really get through to me on certain days because I'm just doing deep work, whether that's thinking, researching, like I might not even be putting pen to paper or on a PowerPoint. I just need space to think about a problem and get deeper in that problem. And it's between those hours, which is my optimal thinking time. And I think the mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make is that they treat emails like instant messenger when they're very different modems, modems of communication. Someone WhatsApps you, they're expecting you to WhatsApp them back. I'm an unread type of guy. Like I'll, I'll leave something unread and, and reply back when it suits me. Um, again, going back to that son of my universe thing, I don't want the notifications to rule my life in the same way. Um, and then with email, I treat it the same way. Like It's not instant messenger. I didn't get back to you for a week or for two weeks. That's, it's an email. Like if it was urgent, it wasn't the right, it wasn't necessarily the right modem to, to get to me. And sometimes I'm sending someone a calendar link and he's sending them a date in March. Oh, that's too far. All right, that's fine. If it doesn't work for you, I understand. And I have to be at peace with that or else it's going to erode into that, that time that I blocked to do this deep work. Another thing that changes as you get better at your job is understanding what that job is. You know, like what is my actual role right now? you know like is it to be paying invoices is it to do this it's just mm. understanding like it's really hard yeah what are, and, and and that's towards seeing the signal versus the noise yeah it's like what in my role right now do i need to be doing for the company and just realize that everything else is bullshit you know like everything else is just a distraction towards doing that thing yeah business development itself is a good example of that where like as the founders and the leaders of our businesses we should be spending some time on that and we should be the front face of that but all of these little distractions can eat away from time that we should be doing that activity. Mm. Just on the, um, the sense of balance in your life, I saw you on another podcast where you spoke about having the potential to have like a 10 year US work visa and you decided to stay in, in London uh, for a girl you're with who became your wife. I've got that story correct, yeah? What about that as a, <laughs> as a, as a kind of trade? Obviously it ended happily ever after, but um, there must have been you know, a 10-year work visa, there's no guarantees in life, right? But to work in Silicon Valley, that's the, the potential opportunity there must have been share really context. Tempting. Yeah, yeah, I'll share some more context because it'll help it make more sense. And that visa expires next year. <laughs> um, so uh, I used to work for a really small startup consultancy called Elixir. Really proud of them. They're proud of me, vice versa. Um, they ended up getting floated on the alternative investment market. So they did really well. And management consultancies don't usually go on that journey. So they did incredibly well. Founders are very well off now. Um, but in 2015, 2014, I went to San Francisco with one of the partners to set up their, their startup outpost. And there we had to build a business from scratch. I love that. That's like my bread and butter. It gets me excited, zero to one. Um, so what we did was we networked, built relationships and ended up working with Andreessen Horowitz, Sequoia Capital, Greylock, uh, not Grey, yeah, Greylock and Lightspeed Ventures. Looking back now, these are like world-renowned VCs, but I didn't know it at the time, but that ignorance is exactly what I needed in order to get in the room, hustle, get to know these people and learn lessons from their feet. This is how I kind of got into venture. And it was while I was out there, um, I invited the woman who's now my wife to come and join me for like an Easter holiday. It was like in March or something. 
And she was like, no, I can't come out. And I just felt so like, offended almost. I'm like, this would be paid by work. You'd be able to come and join me out here. We'd have a great time. Um, but it really went down to principles again in terms of like, she's, she's doing the right thing. Like she can't get time off. Like, and I can't expect that. Let me go. Let me go back to her. And it was a really hard trade-off at the time in terms of my, some of my colleagues who ended up working with some of those VC firms. It's obviously great relationships to have. You never know what kind of career I would have had out there. But at the same time, it's social capital again. It's like, actually, what I, what I took from there is the, the knowledge and the relationships. And it leveraged me into this space. I didn't have to be based there to take those lessons from there. So coming here and taking the risk to pursue love, which worked out but may not have worked out, again, I think it comes to the inherent behavior of an entrepreneur where you have to have certain level of tolerance to taking risk and being comfortable that if it doesn't work out, you have that iterative mindset of, I'm going to continuously learn. I'm still going to gain from that experience, even though it doesn't work out. It's a hard thing to do, but it becomes a bit of a, a habitual muscle once you get into doing that. You know, and I, I think there's so much lessons in that agile and entrepreneurship journey that are actually really good life lessons when we talk about personal development. And that's a good example of one, actually. One of the big ones on that, on, on kind of dealing with and managing change, is just realizing that like there is a positive in every situation. And you know, actually not going there has opened up everything that you're doing now. And I think you really vividly see that, you know, being a founder because something can go terribly wrong. And like, that's what then becomes the learning that catalyzes like your next period of growth or whatever it might be. So, and likewise, something can go really well. I mean, all of these startups that had fantastic pandemics and don't exist anymore, you know? So it's, uh, yeah, it, it can be a, a blessing in disguise. Yeah, look, we're going through this right now, actually, at the Angel Investing School, because the government, um, the Treasury Department, have put in a new update to the definition of a sophisticated investor to say that actually this individual needs to earn £170,000 a year rather than £100,000 a year. And they've heightened the restriction, which means that less people are going to be able to access investing to startups as an asset class as a consequence. So there's a lot of people making up noise about it. A lot of people, like, it's, my, it's our business. We train up individuals into becoming angel investors. But actually, it's only when you kind of slow down, take a step back and say, actually, we should be talking to government about us becoming a training provider of choice. You know, like, we've been running this for years. We're in a great position. We've got a great brand. We know what we're doing. We've trained corporates like Google as well as individuals. We've trained over 500 people. They've made over five, six million in investments. Like, we can really help people make more informed decisions about the risk they're taking when investing into startups. So again, it's like, when you have that optimistic mindset, you're always gonna see opportunity in, in the face of problems, rather than, oh no, I'm down and out. This, this regulation means I no longer have a business. Um, and I think there's probably a positive and negative to that. It's like, I'm a cockroach, it's hard to kill me. It's hard for me to stop like, running a business, because I'm gonna figure out a way to do something of use to solve a problem. But at the same time, it's that same resilience you need to be able to understand actually how you respond to problems and adversity. Just to scratch back slightly, um, obviously you guys are very much in this world, but when you say like angel investing, when I hear the word angel, I think at a place I'd like to live in London or something in the sky, right? Just fundamentally, what, what is it? It's, an it's basically an individual that invests in, in, in a small business, an early business. And, and typically you're either investing your money in exchange for some equity, which is like some shares in that business, or the future promise of some shares in that business. I don't wanna make it too complicated for people. No, no, and the reason that an angel investor does that is for different motivations. It could be because you know, they love entrepreneurship and they love meeting fascinating people, and this is one way to do that. 
It could be because they're an industry expert in a certain field like AI and therefore they, this is a really bad example right now actually, but AI, so therefore they want to invest more into more AI, AI startups. It could be because there's a certain cause in their heart, like they want to back more female founders because they don't think it's fair that female founders get hardly any funding from VCs. So they have different motivations as to why they invest. And then once they've invested, you kind of write the check right off and kind of go to work with supporting the entrepreneur. But you also want to make sure you have that balance of not being a burden to the entrepreneur. You're not meant to be an admin burden. So um, it's this difficult balance of I'm so excited about what you're doing, but I want to stay out your way so you can build a business at the same time. Sure. Do you, do you think there's, because I, I invested in Unplugged, pretty much off the basis of, of I met Hector, I was like, he's a solid guy and I love the idea. Is that... I mean, didn't do much due diligence on like, who you were or the company. Hector sent me loads of numbers. I was like, oh, this is a lot to take in. I just thought, yeah, I get it. Like, I look at my phone too much. Hector's looked at his phone too much. Like, other people must have this problem. It makes sense. Uh, do you think, yeah, I mean, how, how much research should should someone do? Clearly, it depends on your appetite for risk. But just, No, I think it's a great question. It's a good point for us to talk about because an angel investor isn't a financial institution. They're not an organization or a company. So therefore, they're not investing other people's money. They can do whatever they want with their own money. And if I believe in an individual and I want to unlock that person's potential and that future of the world that they want to build, regardless if they succeed or fail, I should be able to do that. So what you did is actually the most organic way that you should be investing in, in founders. I've connected on this personal human level with this individual. I want to empower and support them to unlock their potential because the future of the world that they're trying to create is the future in the world that I believe in. That's as simple as it is. And the truth of the matter is for all angels, angel investing is never your primary source of income. So you don't really in your heart care about making a return because you know that financially I'm making the return from my work or my business or whatever other means, investing in property. But angel investing, you're not actually doing that primarily to make a return. The only people that I'll say are the sliver of angels that are doing that is, that is the angels that are trying to build up their track record to start a VC fund, mm. right? I intentionally want to back these businesses that go to Series A and then actually get acquired because that builds my business case for going to investors to say, I want to build a fund off the back of the track record that I have. But that represents, I think, 1% of angel investors that I speak to. The, I mean, on that as well, I think the when you've got a early stage investment, you might have a financial model, a pitch deck, and the people. And people spend so much time on the financial model <laughs> and the pitch deck, and all that fucking matters is the person, yeah. you know? And like you can tell a little bit from that. You can tell how they prepared it, you know, all, all these kind of things. But it, it's, a, it's a tiny fraction of what, like, understanding who this person is across from you, like, what they're going to do when shit goes wrong. Yeah. Like, it's, Look yeah. at the markets over the last 12 months. Was it the financial model that's getting you through these markets or is it you as the founder? So I'm backing you as the founder, right? Because I, f I think you're going to figure it out because everything's figureoutable. But you're not backing the fact that these things might happen like a COVID or a market change and then interest rates going up. You, you, just unsee, you can't see that stuff happening. Yeah, but I, this is a podcast with Ben and Jerry from Ben and Jerry's, the, the ice cream. And, and they were talking about this. They were like, yeah, the financial model doesn't say the right thing. You just change it until it does. And I'll be honest, that's exactly what happened. You know, It's amazing because especially financial institutions like VCs or all these kind of people, they come in and they've got a very kind of clear set of what they want to see. So you'll do a financial model for one VC and they'll be like, oh, we need to see you know, really fast growth. You're not growing fast enough. And then you'll do that model and then show it to another one. They'll be like, no, this is unrealistic. Like, we want actually a more steady thing. It can destroy so, a lot of value if you're not careful, isn't it's it? It's crazy, isn't it? It's yeah, crazy. and they have such limited influence actually on the outcome. Yeah. Any, any VC, I know a lot of VCs, I have a very good relationship with VCs. Um, I see the, the role that a venture capitalist plays, but 
If I have a portfolio as a VC of 100 startups, you think I can spend meaningful time every week with the 100 startups? I cannot. So I've, there's only a limited influence I have. I'm not in the C-suite. I'm not in there day to day. I'm not having that difficult conversation with this employee that's feeling upset because of a personal matter. So therefore, I have very limited Im influence on the outcome. So therefore, if the outcome is on you as the founder, the best thing I can do is encourage you, be responsive, be a good listener. When you do need help or have an ask, I can, be, I can help and, and, and try and leverage my network to help you and add value. I think in an angel, if you adopt that same mindset in terms of I'm an extension of the team, but I'm not in the team. So if I see an investor update email and it's got an ask and I can actually help with that ask, let me just be helpful. I think that's the best type of mentality to have rather than, yeah, rather than I, I think the tech crunch view a lot of people have of venture capital and starting a business and getting funded and this journey, which can add a lot of pressure actually and can dictate your strategy sometimes in a negative way and take you off course. All right, changing tact uh, a little bit, <laughs> Andy. You mentioned AI. How's AI going to change the next 10 years of the working world? I think AI is fascinating, but I don't think it's as scary as people think it is. I think we, we're still very far off some of the genuine breakthroughs that you want to see in AI. AI, I think, is going to be similar to how there was radio, then there was black and white TV, then there was TV, then there was internet. And each stage, you thought the last technology was going to be the incumbent, but actually they've learned to live alongside each other. I think AI is going to be similar. A lot of people talk about it replacing search or Google search. I don't think so. I think it supplements just how we work and makes us more efficient. I don't think it's there to actually replace us. I don't think anytime soon AI is going to replace us in terms of self-driving cars or trucks. I don't think anytime soon AI is going to make decisions on doing this podcast about humans. There's, there's certain things about how we are as humanity that we don't give ourselves credit for, and especially our brain capacity and how creative we are and how we speak and how we feel. And that can never be programmed by a computer or into a computer. So we always have that competitive advantage over AI. And I think we don't hear people talking about that narrative enough in terms of like backing ourselves and understanding actually what we bring to bear that AI could never replace. And there's so many so many things that AI could never replace in terms of your day-to-day -day livelihood and how we work, live, eat, you know, X, Y, Z. Like, I've got an electric vehicle now, and the infrastructure in this country's pants is not even there yet. It's about 10 years away, you know. But on the one hand, for someone, it's like, this is exciting new technology. On the other person, it's like, oh, this is scary that this technology's come in. But the truth of the matter is, whenever we're early in a technology cycle, that cycle may be a 10 to 15-year cycle. I think that's what we're just entering into with AI. A lot of excitement, a lot of people do need to, uh, are trying to upskill. But when we talk about solving the, most, the biggest problems in the world, AI is not the problem we're trying to solve with a solution. We're trying to solve problems like deforestation, climate change, unplugging from technology. These are not, these are not things AI can solve alone. It may be able to help us in solving them, but it's not going to be the, the silver bullet. There's a classic, classic fallacy of this time it's different. And like every point almost in human history, especially when you go through these, these big bursts in progress, we think like, no, nah, but this, this time it really is different. Like we are the ones who are on this like crazy cusp when this will actually change everything. You also have to think about like systems of control and power. Who's putting out these narratives and who benefits? If I'm a venture capitalist that's invested in AI, it, it is, I'm incentivized to talk more in, about that industry and make sure that industry actually grows to meet its potential so that market does turn really big so that I can make a return, right? If I'm a geek on YouTube talking about technology, actually AI is just another 
conversation that I'm having. We always have to think about like the context of the person that's sharing that information with us and why they're sharing it. I think we don't do that enough to interrogate sources of information, this age of social media and quick fire information, the small bubbles that we're living in online. And we also, once you think of something, uh, then that has an oversized place in your mind of just how impactful that will be. So because of how tangible and how like novel ChatGPT was, everyone was like, oh my God, this changes everything. And suddenly you can put that to every scenario that's going to change every part of our life. And, you know, a year and a bit on, it hasn't really. I actually went for a, a hike in the Cotswolds with a mate, like probably a month or two after ChatGPT came out and, and blew everyone's mind. And we walked past this little like um, uh, honesty bookshop and we picked up this book called Power and Poverty, which is from the 1920s or something. And it talks about machines. So, you know, the, the kind of new uh, mechanical engineering and everything that that was doing to the industrial world. And so it must have been a little bit earlier. And you literally could have swapped it out for AI. It was talking about how humans are never going to have to work again. And it was exactly the same narrative that was going on 100 years later about this new technology. And, you know, this time it's, it's not different. And uh, so in terms of angel investing, what, what do you see? Uh, what, how do you see that going in, in, in the future? Well, I think this new legislation doesn't help okay. because um, it's not inclusive. It's not accessible. It puts people off angel investing. Why have they brought it in then? Just to try and see it from their perspective. No, so this is classic, um, the law of unintended consequences or the second order impact of something. So what happened actually was there's a financial institution that was selling mini, mini bonds to pensioners and it was mis-selling these mini bonds to pensioners. So pensioners were buying into these mini bonds, not understanding what, what they were investing into and the company went bankrupt and had to get bailed out by the government. The government was pissed off by that and therefore they've made a change to sophisticated investor status to protect these pensioners. The unintended consequences that is the same thing that we subscribe to in order to angel invest into early stage businesses. It was never intended to have that impact. But whoever was brought around the table to solve that problem wasn't a diverse enough cohort of people to represent the problem that we're solving. Right. And there's a lesson in that in itself around problem solving and making sure the right people around the table that have a representative point of view from different angles to ensure that we lower the risk of that kind of thing happening going forward. And we see it in technology startups all the time, like when Uber was first started, it was a luxury Mercedes class Benz in San Francisco. It wasn't really taken off in terms of traction. All of the engineers were white middle class men, you know, who wanted that kind of experience and matched their lifestyles. So only when they started doing customer testing in the Tenderloin and across San Francisco, the working class communities, did they realize the magic moments just getting inside of a car within two clicks of a button on your phone in two minutes. And therefore they democratized it and created something called UberX. And as we can see today, that's what that's what the business has been built off. Yeah, I mean, th this is, I'll, I'll be honest, the, the, the biggest failing with us at the moment with Unplugged is pretty much all of the London team is white and from the home counties. And I think what people get wrong about diversity is, is the business impact and the power of having different perspectives sat around the table. And I think that is where like, it becomes a, you know, people think that they just need to do it to make everyone happy. But it's, it's, it's also just good business to, to, to have people around the table. So I, I do have more empathy for a startup founder who's raised capital, who has the pressure of, I need to hire quickly than a large corporation who, who can afford to actually widen the net, take their time and get the right person in. Not to say that the startup founder shouldn't be doing it, 
but it's a lot easier for a large organization and start this under that time pressure of I've got six months left in the bank. I really need to get someone in today. Yeah, it's really hard. Like I've really tried and, and failed so far. Like I remember me and Ben, when we fired, hired our first role, head of operations, we went through, you know, three, 400 applications, CVs, chose four or five and then looked at it and was like, these are just probably the four or five most similar people to us because, you know, you can you can picture how someone who's like you can do good like yeah, yeah exactly yeah. exactly because because you can relate to it whereas someone who's from a completely different background completely different experience it's harder for you to understand just what value they can bring yeah. so it's uh it's, it's super tricky in the early stage and as you say like it is just all hands on deck but it's it's something that i'm, I'm really keen to to crack as we go i mean how 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 do you see because you're going to big big organizations now i mean how, how do you see uh them adopting it mixed mixed response to be honest but um i think there's a recognition with a lot of the large organizations that there's this intergener intergenerational challenge like the needs of a baby boomer versus a gen x gen y gen z and millennial are very different so actually how do i cater for this workforce where i have multiple needs because we're serving multiple generations and what does our customer base of the future look like what does our leadership of the future look like and how do we start preparing for that today Right, so that's what the, what the larger organizations are thinking of. When I'm hiring Percy, I think a lot around like what journey is that individual trying to go on in life and how do we fit into their bigger picture? And I try and double down on them being a geek on that role rather than a geek about this subject matter of what we're doing as a business. And I know that sounds a bit juxtapositioned, but social media is a classic example of that where like with a social media person, I really want to understand what they geek out, what they look at, what, what, what they're keen on, what they create themselves, what they're watching outside of our industry, what kind of things really inspire them and why. And that tells me that that's someone that's resilient and passionate and smart enough to experiment and try things out for me because they're into it so much. And I can teach them the angel investing knowledge. You can leave that to me. Whereas if someone comes on board and they, they're a geek at angel investing, but they're not great at the social media, I'm not going to get the results that I want. Right. So I try and optimize for, I do want someone that's value aligned, even though I don't want them to be like me. But I want that value alignment more from the fact that there's a philosophy and how I believe that we should be as a team. And you're buying into this philosophy. You know, it's like Pep Guardiola at Man City. There's a philosophy that you're bringing in by becoming that manager of that team. And I see the same with my team. Like being inclusive is, is a big deal to me. Like, it's a deal breaker if you're not. You know, that's what I care about personally. And, and my personal value has, has become the company value right there's other values that have been shaped by us together as a company like setting the standard and nurturing people to that standard that's something everyone in my team does right so i don't mind working with someone that's more inexperienced or a partner that's not there but it's our job to get them to the standard what are you doing to nurture that person to that standard right and we get called out i get called out sometimes and that person why don't you nurture them to the standard he said is a value yeah, it's true, I should be. I'm going to go back and have another conversation. And what you notice is these values are getting reinforced now by my team and not only me because they buy and subscribe into it because actually I think it pattern matches to personal values that they have too. I think it's very difficult when someone has different value set personally and you're trying to get them into your value set. It's just going to be tension and they don't want to change who they are, right? They're like molded clay. You can't wet it and remold it again versus when it's someone that's young and you know they're molding that clay for the first time you're shaping certain mental models actually it's a lot easier to get them on board and aligned with this opportunity especially when you show them how you fit into the bigger picture of who they want to become you, you spoke earlier about a value of yours the five two rule or, or so on which is super tangible like is that 
it sounds like you've been very effective in implementing values. Do you kind of have that tangible element to, to all of your values? Or? Uh, yes and no. That one is a difficult one, actually, because it, it comes to the tension of, of uh, my team might want to see me more in person. I can only do two days a week max. Do you know what I mean? So that is really that tension point. Another one is um, play the long game. And I talk about, you know, measuring your life in decades and not days and, you know, really focusing on direction over speed. Like, and that value is really around making informed decisions. Let's not rush. Let's just take a time out. Let's take a step back. Let's think about this thing. Let's not be impulsive. Let's just actually take a, make a calculated decision as to like who, who wins here. How is it a win-win? How do we benefit? How do we shape? Like before I came here today, I was reviewing a, a sales deck. It was a sales deck that we've been iterating on for about two weeks. Like technically, we could have sent it the day after to the client. But that 70% to 100% in terms of the 30% changes that we've made over the two weeks are well worth the time that we spent. You know, and, and that's direction over speed. I'd rather put the right thing out and it takes us two weeks than put the wrong thing out in the hope that I'll win the client because it was, it was right off the back of a really good conversation. And hopefully the clients will respect us for that and the fact that we've, we're so thoughtful about this process. Imagine how thoughtful we'll be when we're serving you and your audience. How do you, how do you think? You spoke about journaling earlier, like if you, need to, mm. if you need to work through a problem. Yeah, so I used to be a product manager and a head of product um, when I was working inside a startup. So I kind of see people as a product and culture as a beautiful product. And I used to geek out um, as a product manager with like measuring everything with Google Analytics or Mixpanel and analytics platform to understand like why are people, no, where are people dropping off at certain points? So you can have an onboarding journey, it's three steps long, sign up with your email address and your name, Tell us a bit of information, then get into the act the platform, let's say, and take your first action. And I used to love when I go into an analytics software, it'll tell me what is happening in terms of the pattern, but it doesn't tell me why. And to understand why, I'd have to interview five to ten people in that audience to understand the why behind the what. And I find my personal life is similar. I I track my life in Notion through like a digital database that I created, which is my journal, where I categorize like, what is this thing related to? It could be like personal life and family, marriage, health and fitness, work and business, um, hobbies, creativity. And then I have a subcategory around, is it a win? Is it a lesson rather than a failure? Um, or is it a testimonial, which is like some feedback? And, and I track everything in that way, or action, I think it's the last one actually. And I track everything in that way. Then every six months, I'll look at a category and I'll look at the subcategory and I'll understand what are the patterns there. What's the commonality there? What gives me energy? What drains my energy? Based on what I've learned, what do I want to do more of? What do I want to do less of? And in there's all sorts of random shit. It could be like a picture from this podcast today. And one thing that you said in particular that really stuck with me that I wanted to meditate on and write down. You know, so that's my slowing down in, in before I can speed up. You know, and, and it's something that I say I probably do daily, but not intentionally. I just do it when it feels right. And it's helped me pay a lot more attention to the connection between my core beliefs how I feel, how I behave, and how I respond when I get triggered. And that responding how you get triggered is such an important point because you know when someone can say something to you and it triggers you. Like for me, my wife can say something to me and I have, I have that feeling inside where my heart starts beating, I'm getting hot inside. But because I'm acknowledging that feeling, I have an opportunity now to register and respond in a different way rather than react. You know, and, and often it's responded in a joke or something lighthearted to just get me back to a kind of like normal pace so that I don't argue and instead I have a conversation. And I think it's so p powerful when we understand ourselves and how we feel 
and how we respond based on how we feel because we understand ourselves at that level. But we're going through the pace, especially in London life of day to day and it's so fast paced. Sometimes we're not registering this core belief that links to how I was feeling, which links to how I then behaved and how I responded when I got triggered. And that whole chain is, is so important and part of the consultant work I do, the nonprofit I mentioned before called Salt. Love it. I read a couple of books on happiness around the same time a while ago what really struck me one was flow by you know mikhail very long time. yeah exactly exactly yeah. and the other one was called the happiness hypothesis by a guy called jonathan Haddis, i think and they both spoke about how happiness comes from when everything in our life is in harmony so our, our beliefs and values as well as you know who we're spending our life with and what we're doing in our day-to-day and it's as soon as one of those out of whack so as you said that like you're working in a work environment it's actually not aligned with your values, that you just feel this discomfort and dissatisfaction with what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, it sounds like you're incredibly intentional in, in tuning in on that, but uh, that's the tricky thing. It's like really defining that and, and even just spending the time to, to meditate on it, to think on it, I think is is rare. And I think that to that point is a real privilege to be able to spend time, work with people who are value aligned in service of people who cared, but you can't get there without going through the pain. Like I call it second mountain people. Like you've got to go across that first mountain first where you're thinking about yourself, thinking about a pay rise, thinking about your status, thinking about the brand that you're working for, thinking about who you're becoming in the world. Then often you go through this steady descent where you almost enter into this wilderness of, oh shit, that didn't quite work out. For the last 12 months, a lot of people, for example, lost their jobs. They didn't expect that. They thought they had jobs for life. And now they're having that old shit moment where it's like, what do I want to do? What is my purpose? Actually, I want to create something. I want to be an entrepreneur. Actually, I want to be useful. Like, a lot of people are going through that at the moment. And then that second mountain I find is more about being selfless. Actually, how can I contribute more into others? How can I spend time with people who care? How can I do more, more valuable work that actually resonates with who I am? And I think once you find your rhythm with that, which isn't easy, the money somehow takes care of itself. And that's a really privileged thing to say. And I'm not a multimillionaire but neither do I have to worry about food or electricity or shelter or warmth. And I think that says, that says a lot in this world. You know, sometimes in our bubble, we don't recognize that or remember that. And that's part of being unplugged, being able to kind of like take those moments out to, to do that personal development for yourself, especially I think as entrepreneurs, where you need to be in charge of your personal development. There's not a company giving you a budget and telling you to go on certain training every year. You kind of have to do that for yourself because you care about yourself in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's probably my biggest realization from spending time offline is like I'll, I'll come back kinder like more compassionate and the longer i go not not like taking a break and just getting offline i can feel that kind of just fading a bit you know and just getting a bit more like caught up in it all and just a bit less like just kind of unconditionally compassionate but but then if you really strip it away i'm a big believer that you know we, what's left is is good you know mm-hmm. it's all the kind of shit that's been programmed into us and all the shit that happens through the the week that that comes out in in bad ways so yeah i I think that's super important on the journaling in a a much much less impressive level i was never like journaling anything in my life hector but i've got like a one line a day diary so it's like five years and you just write one line a day on wherever we are now january the 24th and then you sit is that right and then you see it's just on the same page, so you can see 2024, 2025, 2026. So at least you can look back on what you were thinking that day. How far through are you? Well, it started on January the 1st. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So nice and clean, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nice. It's, it's, it's all habit forming, isn't it? Sure. 
and, and some of the thoughts aren't you know very profound or life-changing or anything like that but uh just yeah i mean i guess i have to do it for a few years to really see the benefits of looking back on what i was doing each, each time of the year but i thought it was a nice because it is one line doesn't even give you space to write an essay it's just, it's just yeah that would really frustrate me but i understand <laughs> i understand the logic of it yeah <laughs> what advice would you give companies startups about defining their values setting that implementing it and making money that's <laughs> a lot um i think we have to remember when we work in organizations or companies um it's really easy to think about what i want to do based on who i am it's very hard to have empathy and actually speak to the people to understand actually what do we re represent as a collective and often there's breadcrumbs in how we act in terms of what we value you know and you notice it when you have trade-off decisions i've got this sales call and i've got this internal hands with uh, all hands of the team Am I going to move the old hands? Am I going to move the sales call? Like these kind of things leave breadcrumbs into what is a priority? What is important to us? What do we value? So I think you have to spend time with the team to really understand actually what's everyone's personal values? How does that show up in the workplace? And what's our collective values? I think the gap where most people really make a mistake is they just start at a company level. Let's shape our company values. You can't if you don't understand the individuals that are in this company. So I'm a big believer in getting to know people's backgrounds and creating a safe space where we can be open and vulnerable to understand what is contributing to this thought that you're, you're bringing here or this challenge or this conversation. Because if I don't know you holistically, I can't get the best out of you and I'm not giving you a platform to, to be your best either. You know? So I had a workshop recently with a, a large client and um, we we're talking about gender in the workplace and three of the men were talking about their sisters, their mums and their, their, their changed perspectives because of these women in their lives. And it was new insight for everyone around the table. All of them had been working in that organisation for 20 years, but they hadn't gone to that level of depth in conversation. And it was sad to me that you can spend so much time but stay so shallow and not getting to know someone because you're so focused on this transactional experience of working rather than really getting to the depth of I actually know you at that level and therefore I'm willing to go the extra mile because I care about you now. And when someone cares, there's a different level of effort than transacting and just doing work alongside them. And it's the same in terms of your relationship with your customers. If I speak to customers and I, and I can reel off stories of what customers think and who my customers are, there's a next level of depth and empathy that I have for them and care in the products that I create for them. If I don't speak to the customers and the longer the gap is where I don't speak to the customers, you notice that come through in the quality of the product that I create for them is disconnected because I'm not spending enough time with them. And I'm not recognizing that their needs are not static, but their needs actually evolve over time. And so do my employees' needs. Because when he started in this company, he was really junior. Now he has a wife and he's got a one-year-old. His needs have drastically changed. And I've not acknowledged that and we've not actually had conversations about that. So it's really hard, this balancing act of staying in tune with your employees and your customers on a consistent basis. But if you can create that habit, almost like how I do with journaling, where you're having those conversations at a regular point, like everyone has a tour of duty every day where they have to spend, I don't know, a half a day of customers or whatnot, I think it's really healthy, really, really healthy. So in terms of values, I think this is about spending more time with the people, understanding them personally, and helping bring that to the forefront and shaping what our company values are. And then recognizing once they're set, they're not static. It can't be the same values for the next 10 years. It has to evolve because the people that we're getting into our company are evolving and so is the customers that we're serving. Yeah, it's, it's easy to kind of, you know, just go there and forget why it's there. Yeah. And, and it just kind of almost, as you say, second order consequences turns up in ways that are unhelpful and unhealthy. And in terms of implementing them, um, the, you mentioned Dries and Horowitz. I don't know if you read Ben Horowitz's yeah. book, um, what, 
well, he's written another one about culture yeah yeah uh, what we do is who we are and there's a great story in there about how Andreessen Horowitz one of their kind of core values is that they know how hard it is to be an entrepreneur so they, they never want to fuck around entrepreneurs which lots of VCs do so if anyone is late for a meeting with an entrepreneur they get fined a hundred dollars for every minute they're late you know so so not only do they have that value but they have a very actionable so yeah what, what you said about choosing if you want to go to the team meeting or the, the customer call again th that's maybe not so much it but it's like all these decisions during the day are, are, are what then you know demonstrates the, the values absolutely and having that reinforcing behavior like the fine in that case really helps and sometimes even having a post-it note in a room like i used to have a post-it note in one of my meeting rooms that says who's not in the room and it was our way of thinking like do we have a representative voice here in this conversation that we're having regardless who's using that meeting room and honestly, I, I've lost count on how many times people have come to a more informed decision of, do you know, we came to this conclusion and then we thought, oh, actually, what would someone with disabilities think? Or what would a woman think? Or what would a, you know, so even those little things help to reinforce it. And that's just the post-it note. Awesome. Great, great uh, hour, Andy. Yeah, a lot in there. Some magic, man. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Where, where can people find you, Andy? I guess you can Google Andy Ayim or just go on LinkedIn, Andy Ayim. Um, or in the gym at 4.30 in the morning. The gym at 4, I'd rather people didn't find me there because I'm so focused. Itching ideas. In the, yeah. Yeah. When you're in the gym, are you listening to anything just with your thoughts? What, what does that look like? Yeah, I, I do. Li I listen more to audio books, actually, during my gym time. Um, but then I pause a lot to write things down because I'm paying more attention to what I'm listening to so that this becomes more seamless. Um, and... I'm I'm trying to learn while I'm doing it, and I don't think that's actually healthy. It's probably easier for me to to just have background music in my ear so I can just get on with doing the gym. <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know. Maybe any, that's... any book recommendations for us? Um, to be honest, I just reread um, "Built Built to Sell," which is a really good read. Um, I love Tuesdays with Maury. It's probably my most recommended book over the last five years. Um, and then the late Clayton Christensen had a great book called um, uh, Measure, How to Measure Your Life. Oh, nice. Yeah, Love it. It's a really good book. Check that out. Great yeah. stuff. Well, Andy, such a joy to have you on here. Thank you very much. Oh, my Thanks, pleasure. Man. Cheers. Pleasure. Does your brain ever feel like this?